the path doesn't have to be straight. We have enough information that we can value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome to another episode of We Get Real AF. I'm Vanessa Alava. And I'm Sue Robinson. Please help support our mission and our show. It only takes a moment to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. According to DoSomething.org, there are between 20 to 40 million people globally in modern-day slavery, with women and girls making up 71% of the enslaved population. Today, we're speaking with the trailblazer who's dedicated her career to training survivors of human trafficking and gender-based violence to become software engineers and tech entrepreneurs. We're thrilled to introduce Laura Hackney, co-founder and CTO of Annie Cannons, a nonprofit organization offering marginalized communities a fresh start by empowering them with tech skills and enabling economic opportunity. You know, Sue, this episode is so important and relevant and something that um, I hope brings awareness to this issue. Uh, Human trafficking is such a pervasive crime. Um, It's a global issue we're facing, but don't spend enough time talking about it. So having Laura today is super exciting. Absolutely. And it's also, I think a lot of people don't realize what a pervasive crime it is right here in the United States. And so the Annie Cannons organization is doing a lot to help victims of human trafficking move on with their lives and do really incredible things. So we're excited to share their story with you guys. Laura, welcome to the show. Welcome. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much. Laura, Vanessa and I live in North Carolina, which I-95, that corridor runs through our state down through Florida. And I've heard over the years that it's a major human trafficking artery, that our state, that Atlanta, Georgia, that these are hot spots for human trafficking. Yet I don't know that people realize the scale of the problem or how a young woman typically falls into that type of situation. So maybe you could walk through that with us and educate us on how this happens. Yeah, absolutely. One of the first questions I get is, you know, where do the people that you work with come from? I think a lot of people think that um, when they hear trafficking, they think, oh, someone must be moving across borders. Um, But actually, a vast majority of the students and the the people that we've worked with through the lifetime of our organization have been, you know, from the U.S. and and trafficked here within the United States. Um, We have worked with people who have come in from other countries, Um, But for the most part, it it is definitely a problem that also exists here in the United States with people who were born here. And so I think when when we define human trafficking, we define it pretty broadly. So we include sex trafficking as well as labor trafficking. Um, And Annie Cannon's, we we realize that the lines between exploitation and other forms of gender-based violence, such as domestic violence, often there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of gray area. It's an incredibly difficult crime to sort of accurately define because everyone's experience is very different. Um, But at the core of it, the sort of, the sort of thread is exploitation. It is someone exploiting another human being for their gain, whether that's monetary gain, status gain, 
um, those types of things. The United States um, in 2000 passed the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which defined you know, legally what human trafficking was. Um, it, had to, it has to include certain things, um, force, fraud, coercion. Um, but I think it's important to keep in mind that it is a huge problem that exists all across the world in every country in the world. It's something that always looks different depending on the geographic, the cultural, the economic situation that you're looking at in a particular place. Um, so for example, in, in most major US cities, you do see more trafficking. There's trafficking in the agriculture industry. There's trafficking in the hospitality industry. There's of course, sex trafficking, which can take place um, in traditional like brothels, but also online um, as of course we've seen um, in the past couple decades. Um, so. I would say that a lot of what we see and a lot of the people that we work with do identify as women. Um, it is really unfortunate, the lack of services that exist for men and boys in this country who've been exploited either for labor trafficking or sex trafficking. Um, so most of the referrals that we get from agencies are um, for people who identify as women, although we would love to serve um, anyone. Um, but that is mostly what we see. We see a lot of individuals who've been in foster homes or group homes um, or who have some um, sort of lack of stability in their home life. Um, we've seen individuals where if they grew up in foster home, they were essentially groomed by someone um, who, have, who saw vulnerabilities that they had that were no fault of their own. Um, but by saying things like, um, you know, caring words to someone. It was sort of the first time that that individual might have heard caring words like that their entire lives. Um, and so going with that individual didn't seem like a risk. It seemed like a choice that was better than the ones that they had before. A lot of the people that we talk to say, I can go with this person where I know that there's a risk, or I can go and be homeless where there's also a risk. So a lot of what we hear people talking about are actually making choices for themselves or for themselves and their children um, that for us might seem like you know, not a great, not a great decision, but is actually a choice based on sort of the, the what's available at that time. Um, so I would say that there's um, all different kinds, all different forms um, expo of exploitation that exists across the country. Um, the estimates vary widely. Um, even within the last two years, the global estimates have almost doubled um, because now there's sort of an international consensus that child marriage also um, should be considered human trafficking. Um, so you, you'll see numbers going from 47 million all the way up to 98 million um, around the world. So it's definitely something that is pervasive. It's online. I think there, there is such a continuum of an experience that it's just one of those things that it's incredibly hard to define. Um, but it is something where when, when we work with someone and they're telling us their story, a lot of the things that we hear them talk about are the ways that they've had to solve problems, the way that they've shown a tremendous amount of grit to get through their situation. And so that was one of the reasons that we, we picked software development was because problem solving and grit are the two most accurate predictors of someone being a successful software engineer. And we were just hearing these stories about people having to you know, run their own all cash businesses um, under the threat of violence to, you know, for the person that was exploiting them We've had students who, you know, were born into their situation of exploitation, um, and so had to had to navigate their own survival starting from from as early as they can remember. We've worked with people who have never been to school, and we've worked with people who have advanced degrees. It's something that has affected 
sort of all different walks of life of people across the country. That's heartbreaking. When you say um, child marriage right now is not included in the numbers um, associated with human trafficking. I want you to elaborate on that just because it's really curious. 100% in my head, that definitely qualifies as part of that number. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. it's it's interesting because one of the things that's been really hard to get international consensus on are all these different definitions. Um, so previously, the International Labor Organization has had different designations for human trafficking, for child labor, um, for child marriage, all of these different types of things. So it's it's still a process of, of trying to get that consensus of how we define things. And so recently, um, the the Global Slavery Index, which is one of the international um, measurement tools that has been created to try to look at prevalence on a global scale, has within the, I think the last two or three years, just started to include child marriage. And so what was really interesting about that is that you saw this huge jump in numbers and everyone kind of thought, oh my gosh, is, is, is modern slavery getting so much worse? And it's actually just that we're getting better at, at identifying cases and getting and, and um, you know, using the same sort of terminology to describe things that are exploitation. Um, and that's been something that we've also seen in different countries, especially when it comes to labor trafficking. Um, there are all sorts of questions around, you know, where is that line of this particular thing being a crime? And every country has its own, um, what I kind of think of as its, as its weak spot. When it comes to addressing certain issues, I think for the United States, um, it's issues around immigration. Um, and when you have certain immigration policies, that means that we can't help certain survivors of human trafficking that are within our country. It just it causes all kinds of problems. So every country kind of tries to create that delineation at different places to say how what kind of crime this is. Um, but it is getting better in terms of, in my opinion, that there are more of these sort of standards that this particular type of exploitation is something that should be a crime and should be called human trafficking or modern slavery. If you have information regarding missing children or child pornography, please contact the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-843-5678 or through their cyber tip line at www.cybertipline.org. For more anti-human trafficking information and resources, please visit www.humantraffickinghotline.org and www.missingkids.org. I think it's so interesting, um, the point which seems so obvious, but I don't know that we all think about it, which is what is what do these people do after they're rescued? I mean, to keep them out of that cycle. And if they've never had the opportunity to be trained in a skill or a job where they can support themselves, then they're still the victim, right, of their circumstances. So I would love to hear more about how people come into your program, how long it lasts, what skills they learn, and then also some of the um, apps and things that they have come up with that they've developed. Um, so we, we receive referrals um, from shelters and um, legal aid organizations, all different kind of service providers around the Bay Area refer individuals to us. Um, and so they apply to be in our program. And we have, we have a, we do have a screening process, um, mostly to assess individuals' um, you know, if they're able, if they have this sort of housing stability, all those types of things that are in place. And also we do a screening to see if coding is going to be something that is a good fit for them. Um, so we have, we've developed these tools that are relatively um, education agnostic to identify if someone has this sort of 
logic aptitude, um, you know, the, the sort of different visual spatial skills that would need to, to be a good developer. Um, and so once they go through that screening, we have a six month long um, training program that they go through. The first six weeks is focused on building digital literacy skills. So everything you need to know about using a computer and communication tools and email. Um, we have folks go through an internet 101. So learning about the actual physical infrastructure of the internet, how does a bit get from my computer to yours, uh, those types of things. Um, and then we do a full software development lifecycle training. So how do tech companies actually build software? Who are the people on the team? What are their jobs? Um, you know, what's a user persona? What's an MVP? All those types of things. Um, and we actually have students come up in, with their own ideas for software during that process. Um, and that's one of the, I think, one of the most exciting things about the program is that we have people who have all of these diverse lived experiences coming up with technology solutions. And oftentimes they deal with addressing issues around gender-based violence or around trafficking. Um, and so then the remaining six months of the program is focused on front-end web development. Um, so people actually dive into HTML, CSS, JavaScript, all those fun web languages. Um, and then after that, they can actually qualify to start doing um, web development work with our agency. Um, so we have people enter in the following three months, which we call ramp up, um, where they do increasingly complex paid projects, um, either for internal projects for Annie Cannons or for clients. Um, we have a lot of wonderful clients who hire us knowing that their project is going to be part of training someone who's going to work with a more senior developer on putting together a website project or something like that. Um, and then from there, um, it's really up to the individual. Um, so we have these different opportunities when it comes to advanced workshops. So some people um, do advanced workshops on backend languages, database management, um, DevOps type work. We have some people who go on to become teaching assistants. Um, so we actually, the class that we're running right now um, is completely taught by graduates of our program, um, which is really exciting. Um, and so we have people can become teaching assistants and then eventually instructors. Um, other people have become product managers within our organization. Um, and then we also offer if people want to go and work at a tech company, um, we'll help them go through the resume process, the interview process. Um, but for the most part, people stay as contractors or employees within our agency, working on projects, building their skills, um, and not having to deal with a lot of the, the barriers that exist in tech. Um, and, you know, a lot of the uncertainty that exists in tech right now with, with the pandemic. We're really excited. There are quite a few projects that are in various stages of development. One of them that's actually launched in the App Store is called EasyTRO. Um, and TRO stands for Temporary Restraining Order. Um, we had a student who wanted to solve the, the completely onerous and re-traumatizing process of filing for a restraining order um, in her county. And she said that it was just completely confusing. You had no idea what was going to happen next. Um, so she wrote out um, this user story of someone being able to actually not only get information about what the process was going to be like, like a what to expect when you're expecting kind of thing, um, but also be able to actually fill out the form on her phone um, and have those um, inputs be automatically generated onto the PDF itself um, and emailed to the person seeking the restraining order. Ideally, it would go straight to the, the court clerk, um, but that's another layer of, 
of government we haven't quite <laughs> we haven't quite tackled yet. Um, but things like that, where it's um, it's a process that anyone going through it would struggle with. And so, how do we make it easier? How do we make it more accessible? Um, was a project that we're really excited about. Another one that um, is in the sort of earlier stages right now, but we're incredibly excited about is called Referral. Um, and it's meant to be a platform um, that is survivor-centered that helps an individual go through the process of receiving services. Um, and so a lot of times what happens is an individual will show up at a shelter and have to tell their story about what happened to them. And then they'll have to tell that same story over and over again for every type of service that they want to receive. And oftentimes they could be going in and out of shelters. They could be seeing different case managers. And so we were hearing from people that not only did they not know what services they were eligible for, but they were having to retell um, you know, this, this triggering story over and over again. Um, so what this helps, what this application, um, what we plan to do with it is to not only let the user, the survivor, store her data and control her data and control her story and lease it out to the agencies that she wants to connect with, but then also help those agencies make those referral connections on her behalf. I think that's so smart, and it's such a beautiful example of how a person who's gone through something really dark and difficult can transform that and turn that into a tool that will help other people who are going through that difficult time. You're reminding me of when I, um, as a freelance video producer, I did a video for a North Carolina child protection agency, and it was the same thing. These children who had been victims of abuse had to tell their story to a social worker and to a doctor and nurse, and then to a judge in some cases, and and a guardian ad litem. And, and it was just, they could not heal because they had to keep going through it over and over again. So I'm wondering if um, even the app that you're describing could be used in those kinds of cases for juveniles who've gone through really traumatizing experiences. Oh, that would be incredible. Yeah, I think I think a couple of the things that we were really trying to solve for, um, because we could see if we solve some of these problems first, then using that technology um, to be able to build other products and, and collaborate with other other technologists and other nonprofits would be so amazing. Um, we're really trying to focus on safety. So how can we make sure that someone using this application, um, you know, can can feel safe using it? Can not only feel like their their data is in their control, but also if their exploiter is controlling their phone or controlling their device, how do we create something that that they would be able to use and, and be able to use in a safe way? Um, also solving for problems around how do you make sure that if someone loses their device um, or loses their access credentials that they can still access their data. Um, so a lot of questions around, you know, how do you how do you really have a um, a trauma informed method of obtaining biometrics? Is that something that we could even look at? Um, so we're kind of we're we're in this um, really exciting exploratory phase of trying to answer some of those questions and figure out how we can use some of the amazing open source technology that already exists um, or create you know some of our own that we could eventually contribute you know, to that community and say, this is a way that you can build an application to really help protect children or really help protect refugees or help protect journalists or different types of things. Um, we, we love the thought of being, you know, in those conversations and working with people who really know a lot about those, those types of issues as well. How do you help your developers market their applications and what are the privacy issues surrounding that? We do have some developers who have their own projects um, that are not part of any canons, and that's awesome. And they, we kind of help them and advise them, but they're their own intellectual property. Um, for applications that are, um, you know, built by the anti-canons community as a whole, 
um, we do try to do a lot of that marketing with our nonprofit partners, with with our networks, um, with other groups of technologists, with survivor networks as much as we can, just depending on the type of application. Um, so it really depends, but it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's one of those, um, I think what we'd really like to see is an application like referral or one like easy TRO, where if we can develop it and deploy it in the five Bay Area counties um, and then expand it. So for easy TRO, it would be a matter of making sure that the form is appropriate for each of the different jurisdictions across the country. Um, so how can we you know, try to tie in district attorney's offices, family violence law centers, all of those different kinds of groups that are actively interacting with individuals who need that type of support, um, but are completely overwhelmed with the number of people that they're trying to serve every day. But if they could say, you know, this is the application, select this county, and you can kind of get a lot of those resources on your own, um, that would be great. It doesn't, doesn't take the importance of, you know, the community piece out, but hopefully with technology, we can solve some of those really hairy logistical problems. Oh, I was thinking at that very point, you know, if, if I was in a situation where I was dealing with someone hovering over me and always, you know, watching what I'm doing on my mobile device or on my computer, I mean, the biggest thing is a red flag would definitely be anything legal, right? Like any um, attorney searches, any uh, county searches would just be like a, a huge indicator of trying to escape the situation. But if there was a way for them to search certain keywords where, you know, you, the app would potentially populate because of what they're searching. Um, it, that would be the ideal situation. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's interesting because it's a little bit of, um, we want as many people as possible to know about the products, but we also don't want the wrong people to know. So it's sort of figuring out the right blend of, of how to make sure that, um, the sort of really important touch points that we have in our communities where people are often interacting with first responders or individuals in, in the legal system that they can have, you know, access to this type of technology to help out. Um, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting balance. If you believe you may have information about a trafficking situation, please call the National Human Trafficking Toll-Free Hotline at one 888 373-7888. Anti-trafficking hotline advocates are available 24-7 to take reports of potential cases. All reports are confidential and you can stay anonymous. Tell us a little bit about your career journey. Absolutely. I actually started my career um, in academic research, um, looking at issues around migration and gender-based violence um, and different sort of versions of human trafficking that exists around the world, looking here in the United States, um, as well as places like South, Southeast and South Asia. Um, and really, over time, in doing a lot of this work and meeting a lot of incredible survivor leaders, just started hearing the same thing over and over again, which was, you know, as someone who's been through this situation, we need, we need work, we need career opportunities, we need economic independence. Um, and so most of my career up until that point had been in, um, you know, doing research and working in academia, um, made, a, made a pretty sharp pivot <laughs> um, to learn how to become a software engineer. Um, so spent time, you know, working with some really great mentors and individuals who really promote diversity in tech um, and started working with my soon-to-be co-founder, 
um, on putting together a company that could start to provide those economic opportunities to folks that we were meeting and who we knew just had really incredible potential. Um, so it was one that went from doing a lot of interviewing um, and doing a lot of sort of writing to suddenly doing a lot of a lot of coding and then a lot of teaching. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and what inspired that pivot into tech? So at a certain point, um, when I was having a lot of these conversations with um, nonprofit leaders as well as survivor leaders, there was just a lot of conversation around this huge gap in the anti-trafficking movement. A lot of the movement historically has been focused on uh, rescue. You know, how can we get people out of situations of exploitation? Or it's been focused on prevention, um, trying to educate the general public on what's happening and the fact that this exists in the world. Um, and then sort of the next, um, I would say, five years after that, people were really focused on providing things like emergency shelter. Um, but what we were seeing is that individuals were, were getting stuck in the cycle of being, quote unquote, you know, rescued or getting out of the situation on their own, going to a shelter, but then not having access to a lot of opportunities outside of that. So they would unfortunately go back into this, into this cycle. Um, and so we started talking about different ways to break the cycle. And at, at that time, San Francisco and other places in the Bay Area um, were seeing this huge growth in coding boot camps, where it was like, if you can spend $20,000 and 20 weeks, you can learn how to code and get a job in a tech company. Um, and so we started talking about software as being that career path that someone might take, um, because not only was it something that was lucrative, but it was also something that the more we thought about it really fit well with the population that we wanted to work with, which meant that, you know, people could work from home, people could work with their kids around. Um, we have students that we work with who um, can't take public transportation every day because their explorer might be taking public transportation. Um, you know, we have, we have folks that, um, you know, love different types of industries and software is a way to get into all different types of things, whether that's, um, you know, whether that is academia or that is fashion or it is, you know, all sorts of different things. It's a way for people to kind of grow their skills. And we also saw it as an opportunity for people to have a way to identify themselves in their lives. It wasn't just survivor or victim, but being able to introduce themselves as a web developer or a software engineer as something that we saw was really missing in the movement. And so we started thinking about how can we take all of these open source curriculum curricula that exists in the world to teach coding, but actually go through the process of making it trauma-informed and making it fit the group of people um, that we knew could learn the skills, but that hadn't had any support up until that point. Um, so I was actually the first person to go through the curriculum itself. Um, and we worked with a lot of other experts to develop it, not just technical experts, um, but people who had had a lot of experience working with survivors, um, working with survivors of gender-based violence, um, and as well as being survivors themselves. Um, so once I kind of started the path of, of learning how to code and putting together this curriculum, then the next question was, you know, how, how are we going to teach it and how are we going to create a classroom that's also trauma-informed and also creates the kind of community that we saw was missing in a lot of these different, you know, learn how to code quick um, endeavors around the Bay Area. So we really started focusing on those things and, um, and knew that from the very beginning that if we were able to not only just train people, but to also source work for them, they could actually work in an environment that didn't have the same sort of unfortunate but traditional discrimination that exists 
um, in tech companies around the world. It's interesting you mentioned um, that there are are women afraid of potentially taking public transportation and subjecting themselves to potentially being identified by somebody who, you know, might be a whistleblower or something to that effect. And it's just the things that the average person might take for granted and the opportunities that you're allowing someone through this program to um, to go around those fearful situations um, is very admirable. I think one of the things that we found has been just um, barriers to opportunity in general and how, how different sorts of, um, I would say, systemic barriers exist that can even exacerbate what someone's particular experience with exploitation is. So for example, you know, we do see a disproportionate number of, of women and girls of color who are being exploited. And then on top of that, when you, when you look at um, someone coming into our class for the first time and saying, you know, I've never had my vision tested. And so I need to be able to look at the screen or look at my computer. And so it's, you know, it's, what we're trying to and hoping to do is build an ecosystem of of services of support where someone can actually get access to all the services that they need for things like that. Because I think one of the things that doesn't often get talked about is some of the less glamorous, <laughs> you know, sort of things that are are so important in your daily life and are, are so fundamental. Health insurance, you know, all all of these types of things. That when you have conversations about human trafficking, it can kind of it can kind of stay focused on the crime. But then when you think about how we can keep people from being exploited, it's by solving a lot of these problems that exist that make people vulnerable in the first place. And then for us, we see this program as not only being one that can help people once they've already been exploited, but hopefully can mean that they won't be re-exploited or that the people in their communities or their children won't be exploited. And so that's the thing that I think kind of not just looking at, looking at human trafficking as a symptom um, of all of these different push and pull factors that exist within our society um, that that overlap. But if we kind of start addressing them, then I think that's going to be where we actually start seeing the the change and, and the hopefully the change that you know we want to see in our society. Yeah, absolutely. You're helping rewrite that narrative. We want to let you guys know about an event coming up on Thursday, August 13th, where you can get involved in this important issue. Awareness Through Aesthetics is having a virtual social beginning at 6.30 p.m. You can find out more on their website, awarenessthroughaesthetics.com. I'm going to spell that for y'all. It's A-W-A-R-E-N-E-S-S-T-H-R-O-U-G-H-A-E-S-T-H-E-T-I-C-S.com. Check out that website, learn more, and get involved. I'm really interested in, in your story personally because a lot of people when they're in college and they're idealistic, um, want to get involved in social justice causes and they want to make a difference. And then they get a job and they get busy, you know, paying the rent and, and just with the life. And they never actually, you know, carry through with that bright idealism. You started out as, as a researcher. You were very passionate about this particular population and this problem to the point that you learned about coding and engineering and software and co-founded this organization. What enabled you to do that? And what would your advice be to other young women who feel the way that you did back in college? The first thing that, that came to mind was um, just having an incredible, you know, group of people that I could turn to, to ask 
dozens and dozens of questions. And I have an incredible co-founder who had a lot of experience um, as a general counsel in tech startups. So the sort of day-to-day operations of running an agency was already sort of in her in her wheelhouse. And and the more we talked about this, the more that we realized that we could we could build something that would that would be self-sustaining and that would be something that we could hopefully have other nonprofits, you know, we could share our model with and, and see other nonprofits get out of that cycle of always being dependent on on donor funding. Um, but I, I think yeah, I think the answer is um, you know, it was definitely a big step. There were definitely a lot of nights when it was like, do I leave this job <laughs> to start something brand new? And, you know, we're sitting in a, on the floor in the, you know, in our kitchen kind of trying to plan everything out. Um, but I also would be completely amiss not to recognize that I, I do have, um, you know, I, I have a tremendous amount of privilege um, that allows me to do that. I know a lot of incredibly talented people who do take the route of, getting that job that pays really well because they have family members who are, you know, that they're supporting and, or that they have, they're trying to break their own cycles. And so I think it was both um, this sort of knowing that I always had this sort of drive to push towards this type of work. Um, And I think for me, it was also this deep frustration. I was so, I had gotten to a point where I was so deeply frustrated at hearing the narratives that were being used to describe the women that I was interacting with. The damsel in distress, the the wilting violet, the insert other floral metaphor. Um, they just sort of they drove me crazy, and and I and I was sitting here thinking, this is someone who is so incredibly talented, who, given the circumstances that she faced in her life, was was dealt this hand, and and I can use this privilege that I have to provide this opportunity, and when I do that she runs with it. You know, it's, it's not a, it's, it's, it's not something where we're kind of, you know, I I don't know, where where people don't want access to the opportunity they do. And if they're given the encouragement and told, you know, you don't have to look like Mark Zuckerberg to be a coder, um, that you can achieve something. I think when I compare and just look at a lot of the members of our team and what they've accomplished and what they do on a daily basis, it's my first thought is kind of like, of course, this just needed to exist in order for all of these other things to happen. Um, so I guess the answer to your question is um, great people, frustration and privilege. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Great recipe. Yeah. Your team, I mean, the perseverance, you know, the things that they've gone through and overcome and they haven't let their circumstances um, define who they are. They've, they've used it as fuel to become um, a better version of themselves, which is amazing. And the fact that they go through a program where they're literally sometimes starting from the ground up, learning email and what, you know, how to get on the internet. And then at the end of your program, they're coding and developing apps. That's huge. Mm-hmm. It's, it's super fun. I mean, you know, a lot of times when we talk about our program, we can talk about some of the the heavier issues when it comes to things like exploitation, but my day to day, especially when I'm teaching, is um, is incredibly fun. I mean, we have we have a really good time learning and writing algorithms, and they'll be pirate themed or puppy themed or <laughs> or whatever it is. But um, people people really want the chance to learn and the chance to be in a community of other people um, who also want to learn. And one of the I think most incredible things that I've seen is that well, I haven't had a single class when our sixth cohort right now. There's never been any competition. Um, it's always been this like, 
oh, I figured this thing out. Now let me help you figure it out. And then maybe when you figure something out first, you can help me. And everyone's just kind of interacting in that way. And it's, it's a really cool experience, a really cool thing to see. Great. Okay, well, let's move on to our lightning round. These are just some questions that help us get to know our guests in a fun way. And I'll start us off by asking you to finish this sentence. Women are? Resilient. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. That's very appropriate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are three pieces of advice you'd give your younger self? I think the first one would be, don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> um, and similar to that would be, you're the one person that will hold yourself back the most, I think. Um, and lastly, good people are the key. I love that. What is your current favorite application of tech for good? I'm going to have to say easy TRO on that one. <laughs> yeah. It sure sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> what issue do you most help technology will help resolve in the future? Oh, I think I would have to say climate change. What inspires you? This, again, it's probably going to sound corny, but my team daily, I think their accomplishments, their passion to help other people and to learn, their sense of humor. The Lord of the Rings soundtrack also inspires me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what do you wish to learn more about? Oh my gosh, um, so many things. <laughs> uh, at the moment, I in the tech world, I'd probably say I'm really interested in learning about um, self-sovereign identity solutions, um, GraphQL, something, virtual reality I'm really interested in. Um, and then on the non-tech worlds, theater, um, I'm really passionate about astrophysics and how to make the perfect puff pastry. <laughs> Describe the future in one word. I, I just came, I just thought unpredictable is the first thing I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last one. Fill in the blank. Blank like a girl. Code. <laughs> Thank you so, so, so much for being on with us today. Again, we think that what you're doing is so um, important and relevant and admirable. And clearly needed. Yeah, so very needed. We hope that uh, this episode brings awareness to what you're doing for people who don't know. And uh, we wish you the best of luck and success and all of your team too, all of your developers. We've given you guys a lot of information today, and we just want to let you know that to learn about any of the organizations we've mentioned or the web links, please check out our show notes. If you want to support the Andy Cannon's mission to break the cycles of abuse and exploitation and prove that anyone with determination and insight to innovate should be given a fair chance, please visit AnnieCannons.org. That's A-N-N-I-E-C-A-N-N-O-N-S dot O-R-G. Annie Cannons um, is our Twitter handle. Mine is lhack47. <laughs> um, feel free to uh, to reach out. I'd love to. I'd love to talk with folks. One of the best ways to support um, our our students and our graduates is to hire us to build your app. You know, so if it's a a web app, a mobile app, um, website, um, we also do um, do data work um, for clients. Um, so you know, we have we have a full agency. Um, so we've we work with clients that do all sorts of things that have nothing to do with nonprofit work. Um, so I would just say that if you want to get great software and also contribute to a, um, a social impact mission, you should definitely check us out. Awesome. Keep up the great work. I appreciate it. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. 
please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women. <laughs>